Good morning, church. Happy New Year. I want to start off today's sermon with a question for you. How many times have you come to church, either at the bridge or somewhere else, and heard the preacher say that it's really important to read your Bible? I know for a fact if you've been at the bridge for any length of time, you've heard me mention it several times. And I'm guessing if you've been part of other churches in the past, you've heard other pastors mention it too. It's really important to read your Bible. Anyone who's been in church for any length of time knows that it's really important to read your Bible. And yet, many Christians don't do it. There was a survey of American Christians in 2019, and it found that less than one out of three Christians surveyed said they read their Bible every day. And more than one out of four said they read their Bible less than once a week. If you think about it, for a group of people who believe there's a God and who believe that that God wants to know us and has a good plan for us and that the Bible is his primary way of communicating with us, these numbers are kind of shocking, right? I mean, can you imagine if one out of four married couples had the regular pattern of communicating with one another less than once per week? The divorce rate would be through the roof, even compared to what it's at now, which is already super high. I realize in a marriage there may be seasons where the circumstances make it necessary to not communicate that often for a while, but given the choice, would you want to be part of a marriage like that? Hopefully not. I mean, it's concerning when you stop and think about what these statistics mean for the state of spiritual maturity in the church today. And if the statistics on Bible reading in the bridge are anything like the numbers from the US, that means we have a lot of room for growth as a church when it comes to our engagement with God's Word. And I know that me getting up here and just saying, now you just need to do this, isn't going to magically transform us into people who all of a sudden overnight just want to read our Bibles regularly and look forward to it. There's a philosopher named Blaise Pascal and he once said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The, the will never takes the least step but to this object. And I realize some of that language is sort of old. But he's saying no one ever does anything in life except with the goal of being happy because of it. And if we take that rule and we apply it to our Bible reading, what that means is the reason so many of us struggle to read our Bibles regularly is that we just don't believe it's going to make us happy. We don't believe that reading the Bible will make us happy, so we don't do it. But if we want to be people who are building our lives around God's Word and being joyfully transformed by it, we need more time in God's Word in our lives. And we don't need to just be told to do it. We need to have our hearts transformed so that we want to do it. So it's something we look forward to, not just something we feel like we're supposed to do. We need to see and believe that reading God's Word will bring us joy and happiness. And hopefully you're aware now by that, that this year we're going to have a Bible reading plan that we're going to go through together as a church that's going to take us through the story of the Bible so we can get a clearer picture of the Bible's overall storyline. And given the fact that a lot of us probably have a lot of room for growth in how we see and engage with God's Word, we're going to start out the year, 
by taking a few weeks to just talk about the Bible, talk about what it is, talk about how to approach it so that when we finally get to the bigger story of the Bible in a couple weeks, we're going to be ready to engage with it in a really productive way and get as much out of it as possible. And so my hope is that during these few weeks, you'll see that reading the Bible isn't just a chore to do because the pastor says so, but it's actually the key to the happiness that you've been seeking all along. So today we're going to start out this journey by looking at Psalm chapter 119 verses 1 through 16. And we're going to see today that because the Bible is God's word, it's the key to unlocking the good life. Because the Bible is God's word, it is the key to unlocking the good life. And we'll see that it's the key to God's heart, the key to joy, and the key to seeing Jesus. But before we start looking at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who wants to know us and wants us to know you, and that you've given us your word. God, even now we ask for your forgiveness for the times that we haven't treated it with the respect that it deserves because it comes from you. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts today, showing us and convincing us that your word is true, that your word is good, that your word leads to joy. Help us to love you and trust you more because of this time together and to look forward to more time in your word because of this. And in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing for us to see today is that the Bible is the key to God's heart. If you have a conversation with someone today about the Bible, even if that's someone from the church, there are a lot of questions that are likely to come up in that conversation. Some questions that you might hear are, is the Bible really from God? Wasn't it written by human authors? How can we know that it's really from God? Can we really trust what it says, like every single word of it? Isn't it out of date? Is it sexist or racist or homophobic or anti-science? And if you think about the way the average person in our world tends to approach the Bible, it can, be, it can tend to be really skeptical and cynical. We can scoff at the parts that feel strange to us. We can question whether it really still has authority for us. There's a Christian counselor named David Paulison, and he diagnoses the reason for this when he says, functional atheism is our most natural state of mind. Let me repeat that. Functional atheism is our most natural state of mind. What he's saying is even if you're a Christian who believes that there's a God, the default mindset as we go through day-to-day life that controls the way we live and approach and interact with the world is to often live as if God doesn't exist, to live as if God isn't involved in the circumstances of our lives, to live as if God doesn't know us or care about us. And even for Christians, we naturally default to that way of living when we aren't intentionally focused on God and who he is. And it creates this disconnect between us and God. We, we feel like there's a separation between us. And the more deeply we feel this functional disconnect between us and God, the more deeply we're going to question the authority of a book that claims to come from God, right? That makes sense. If you're not really sure whether God is there or whether God cares, then when you look at a book that says it's from God, why should you care? And as we open up Psalm 119 and start reading through it, one of the most shocking things to a modern reader is that this psalm doesn't directly touch on any of the questions that we might expect to hear today about the Bible. Its perspective on the Bible is totally different than ours. 
rather than starting from this perspective of functional atheism and expecting that the Bible has to convince us if it wants us to believe something about God other than our functional atheism. This psalm starts from the assumption that God is real and active in our lives. It assumes the Bible is God's word. Every word of it is authoritative in our lives. The Bible is the key to deep and lasting joy in life. And it assumes if we just try to live out the life the Bible calls us to live, then we're going to experience all these things for ourselves. It's showing us that while yes, there is a time and place for discussing the questions that people in our world have about the Bible, there are also times where simply asking questions about the Bible isn't the right response to it. It's also appropriate and proper to trust God to be God, to let his word speak for itself, and to let his power show itself in our lives as we do this. And God works as we do this because the Bible is the key that reveals God's heart to us. The Bible doesn't just tell us facts and commands like an encyclopedia. It, it introduces us to a person, like, like a love letter. And that's what we see throughout this psalm. Psalm 119, it's famous for a couple things. It's famous for being the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's also famous for being all about the Bible. Words referring to the Bible show up in almost every verse throughout this psalm. And that's pretty impressive because, like I said, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. So it's a lot of words about the Bible to, to pull up in this chapter. But words referring to the Bible actually aren't the most commonly referring word, re commonly repeating words in this psalm. You know what words actually appear the most in Psalm 119? It's personal pronouns. I, me, my, you, your, yours. These words occur almost four times as often in this chapter as words referring to the Bible. And do you know why that is? It's because for the person who wrote this psalm, the Bible wasn't just a book. It was a key to accessing the heart of God. The writer of this psalm knows if you want to know God's heart, the best way to know it is by spending time reading and studying and thinking about God's word and obeying what it says. And yes, there may be times where it's worthwhile to discuss someone's doubts and questions with them. But those conversations aren't going to be as powerful as just jumping in and beginning to live life through the lens of God's word. If you're having trouble picturing this, you can think of it sort of like a human relationship. Imagine that I had never met Justine. And you went somewhere, you met her, you chatted with her a little bit, and you thought, Eric. She would be an amazing wife for Eric. So you invite me to coffee, we meet up, and you just start telling me all about this girl, Justine, that you met, trying to get me excited to meet her because she is perfect for me. And understandably, I'm skeptical because I've never met this person before in my life. So I come up with arguments about why a relationship wouldn't work between me and this person I've never met before. And here's the thing, as long as I'm talking to you about Justine, rather than talking directly to her, there's not really an argument that you can make that's just going to be the definitive, case closed, yes, I'm convinced forever that it's a great idea to marry this girl I've never met. But let's say that instead of talking to you about Justine, I meet Justine and I start spending time with her and talking to her herself 
and I see how much better and more exciting my life is with her being a part of it, that's what's actually gonna change me and get me excited about the idea of a relationship with her. And in a similar way, getting to know God and spending time with him has a power to convince us of his goodness and to get us excited about him that all the facts and arguments in the world just can't give us. And so if you're here and you're not sure whether it's worthwhile to read the Bible for yourself, the writer of the Psalms, he's inviting you to just jump in and try it. Let the Bible speak for itself. The Bible is the key to the heart of God. And as you read it, you're going to come into contact with God himself, which will do far more to convince you of the value of reading the Bible than any debates or discussions that we could have about the Bible. The Bible is key to the Christian life because it reveals God's heart to us. And it's not only a key because it reveals God's heart to us, it's also the key to joy. And that's our second point today. The Bible is the key to joy. Let me ask you, if the average Christian today were to write a poem about the Bible, how would it go? If you had to write a poem about the Bible, how would it go? Here are a few possibilities. Maybe for someone who reads the Bible but can't understand it, their poem would go something like this. I read my Bible every day, but don't get what it says. I wish I heard God speak to me, but I feel bored instead. I keep on reading like I should, my pastor told me to, but as I read, God, I don't catch the slightest glimpse of you. Or maybe for someone who reads the Bible and is a little bit bothered by what it says, this is what they would write. The Bible is a good book, but not quite great. It says some good things, but it's parts that I hate. They feel so outdated for our world today. I get so offended, I want them replaced. Or one more, how about people who just have trouble finding the discipline to read the Bible regularly? Maybe their poem would go like this. My pastor tells me to read God's word. I tried it before and I got bored. Now I feel bad that I don't do this chore but there are so many things that I want to do more. Do any of these resonate with the poem that you would write about the Bible if you had to write one? Would your poem be different? Would anyone's poem be more positive, maybe? I think for many Christians today, we, we know that we should read the Bible, but when we try to, we get bored or confused and then we give up. And when we think about reading the Bible, words that don't come to mind are things like delight, we're more likely to think of bored or confused. And in contrast, Psalm 119, it's a poem or a song celebrating God's word. It's quite different than the poems that many of us would write about the Bible. It's, it's celebratory, overwhelmingly celebratory, almost uncomfortably so for people living in our day and age. Like, have any of you ever prayed this prayer from verse seven? I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I'm mean, gonna guess most of us have not prayed that prayer because we hate rules in our culture, right? When we think of what makes the Bible good news, we think that the good news is that Jesus saves us from the rules, not that God gives us rules. And yet Psalm 119 celebrates the fact that God gives us rules. And not only is Psalm 119 incredibly celebratory, it's also super carefully structured in a way that shows deep care and attention to detail. 
the the poem or the the yeah the psalm it's an acrostic poem if you look at it in your bible you'll you'll actually see that each group of eight verses they're separated out from one another and there's these little words above each group that probably means nothing to you things like aleph bet gimel and it goes on and on through this whole chapter and the reason for this is that this poem it's, it's written in a way so that each group of eight lines, every single line in that group starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verses one through eight, each verse starts with the Hebrew equivalent of the letter A. Verses nine through 16, each verse starts with the Hebrew equivalent of the letter B and so on. And why is that important? What does that show us? Well, it shows us that the poem wasn't just hastily thrown together in an afternoon. Whoever wrote this took a lot of hard work organizing it and structuring it. And as you look how intricately woven together it is, you almost start to feel like the writer's excitement was so deep inside them that it needed to be expressed in this careful and time-consuming way that, that just let them meditate on it over days and weeks, maybe even months, if they were going to express it adequately. The writer of this psalm felt deep joy over the gift of having God's word in his life. And he took time to express that joy in a structured and organized way. And notice also, as we already saw, this, this psalm is so deeply personal. It doesn't hold God's word off at arm's length and try to examine it from the outside. It jumps into the story and tries to live it out. The writer doesn't find joy in life just by ignoring the tough things in life. No, he's aware of the struggles in life, but they're part of the deeply personal engagement that he brings as he comes and talks to God about God's word. If you look at verses 22 and 23, I know they're not part of today's passage, but he talks about how he faces scorn and contempt and how powerful princes are plotting against him. He doesn't ignore these things, but in the midst of his struggles, he's constantly turning back to God's word because he knows that it's there that he's going to find peace and joy even in the midst of his struggles. Even in the tough times of life, he is overwhelmed with joy over the amazing gift that God has given him in the Bible. And he doesn't even have the New Testament yet, right? Like Jesus hasn't come yet. That's not part of what he gets to read in the Bible. And he still says, this is amazing. And look how this joy impacts his approach to God's word. His joy lets him see that God's word is, first, authoritative. That God's word has authority. It doesn't just give suggestions, it gives instructions. Look at verse 4. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Commanded. There's authority there. The Bible can tell us how to live because it comes from God. And God knows how the world works best. And he wants what's best for us which means that the Bible's authority is never oppressive, but always good for us. When we live our lives under the authority of God's word, it brings us joy. Not only is the Bible authoritative, the writer also sees that the Bible is clear. Notice that never once does he complain that God's word is too confusing or hard to understand. He assumes that the average person can pick up the Bible and understand it. He's saying you don't need an advanced degree in the Bible to be able to understand it. Even if you look at verse 9, even young men can understand it. You don't even need to be a full adult. 
anyone can pick up the Bible and understand it because it's clear. In God's wisdom, he gave us the Bible in a format that's clear and understandable to anyone who's willing to take the time to just read it regularly so that anyone who wants can receive joy from reading his word. So the Bible is authoritative, it's clear. The writer also sees that the Bible is necessary. Look at verses 1 and 2. The the Bible is the key to blessing. Look at verse 6. The Bible is the key to avoiding shame. The author is saying, you can't live the way you're supposed to live in God's world without knowing God's word. God's word is necessary if we're going to live properly in God's world. If we're going to live in a way that leads to lasting joy, we need God's word. So it's authoritative, it's clear, it's necessary. The writer also sees that God's word is inerrant. Like we've said, there are some people today who just believe the Bible has errors in it. Or they believe maybe it was appropriate in ancient cultures, but it's outdated now. It needs to be updated to stay relevant in today's world. And if you believe that about the Bible, it's really going to dampen your excitement to read it. You're going to hold back a part of yourself as you read it, always feeling like I need to to keep a distance here so I can examine it objectively and figure out which parts are true, which parts are not, which parts are applicable for today, which parts are not. But this, this chapter shows us a proper understanding of God's word, sees that God's word is completely free of errors. Look at verse six, that I may not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, all your commandments. No part is exempted. No part is left out because there's not one part of God's word that is flawed or irrelevant. God's character as a God who knows everything and a God who cannot lie demands that if the Bible really comes from him, it has to be completely without error. And yes, of course, we need to interpret it in the proper context. There are things from the Old Testament that have found their fulfillment in the New Testament, like the dietary laws, and that don't apply in the same way as they did in the past. We need to read those things properly, but they're not wrong. They still have deep truths to teach us about God when we see them properly. And understanding that the Bible is without error gives us a freedom to engage with it joyfully. So God's word is authoritative. It's necessary, it's clear, it's without errors. And finally, the writer of Psalm 119 sees that God's word is sufficient. Again and again, he comes back to God's word and God's word alone as the key to blessings and the good life. He says, if we have a commitment to learning and obeying God's word, that's all we need in life. We don't need to pair this with other world philosophies or religious practices from other religions. We don't need other toys or treasures to supplement it. God's word is enough. Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. He's saying if we have God's word, if we're committed to studying and obeying it, that's all we need for unlocking joy and the good life that God wants us to have. And I know He's really, really highly praising God's word in the Bible right here. Some people have actually looked at Psalm 119 and how excessively he celebrates God's word, and they've accused him of making an idol of God's word. But again, that's clearly not the case. He sees God's word isn't an end in and of itself. It's a, it's a key to God's heart. It's, it's the way that he gets to know God himself. The Bible is the most practical 
up-to-date, life-changing book there is because it shows us the heart of God and the path to true and lasting joy. David Pallison, again, the, the Christian counselor, he said, the end point and goal of Psalm 119 is not the Bible. The end point of the Bible is life. So it's right to read and celebrate the Bible because it shows us the heart of God and it shows us the path to lasting joy in life. And then there's one other thing that we're going to see today that Psalm 119 shows us, and that is the key to seeing Jesus. You know, when we look at this celebration of God's word in Psalm 119, it's exciting, right? It's encouraging. Think about all the blessings available to us through God's word. But then we slow down and reflect on it a bit more. And it doesn't take long to realize this creates a problem for us. You know, as encouraging and exciting as these words are, they're also terrifying. Because if I'm honest, I don't always love or obey God's word in this way. Right? Like we just saw verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. That is so often not true of me. I delight in other things, sometimes even more than I delight in God or his word. Or verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Guess what? I'm not always blameless. Sometimes I do things that go against the teaching of the Bible. Or verses 5 and 6, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. So often I am not steadfast in keeping God's statutes, which, according to these verses, sets me up for shame, not blessings. A closer look at this passage shows that, actually, all this talk of blessing it's a bit scary and threatening for me because I don't meet the criteria to qualify for the blessings it promises. So how can I still have hope of receiving God's blessing if I don't meet that criteria? Jesus. If you were here last week, remember we looked at Luke chapter 24. And in that chapter, Jesus shows his disciples the whole Old Testament is about him. Every word, every verse is pointing to the fact that he's going to come to earth, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again to rescue us so that we can have forgiveness. And how do we see that in Psalm 119? Well, who is the only person in history who perfectly meets all the criteria laid out here in order to be blessed and to avoid shame? It's Jesus. Jesus was the only one who perfectly delighted in God's word, as we're called to do here. And rather than receive the blessings he deserved, he was instead put to shame and killed on the cross. Rather than receiving the blessings that were his right, he became a curse for us so we could become heirs of his blessings. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see that? Do you see how incredible that is? Jesus bore the curse and shame that we deserve for failing to obey God's word as we ought to. And in return, he gives us a blessing. And you know what's even crazier about this Jesus connection here? If you look at the, verse of, uh, the book of John, chapter 1, what's the title that John uses to refer to Jesus over and over and over again throughout that chapter? 
You can see it in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. All the praise for God's Word that Psalm 119 calls for us to, to have, it finds its truest and deepest fulfillment in Jesus. We see God's heart, yes, revealed to us in his word, but most fully revealed to us in Jesus, the word of God made flesh. We see the path to true and lasting joy clearly in God's word, but most clearly in Jesus, the word of God made flesh. And as we get to know Jesus, this word of God made flesh, we get to know him more clearly through God's written word, the Bible. God's written word directs our attention to Jesus, the word made flesh. And then as we see and appreciate him more deeply, that points us back to the Bible because it's through reading the Bible that we get to know him more. So church, yes, Psalm 119, it shows us that reading your Bible is important. But it's not important because it's a chore that's going to get us good, good standing with God or make him like us more. It's not important because it's an encyclopedia that's going to fill our heads with more knowledge about God. It's important because the living God of the universe cares deeply about you. And he wants you to find deep, lasting joy through knowing and loving and obeying him. In his infinite wisdom, he knows that a loving relationship with him is the only path for anyone to find true and lasting joy. And that relationship isn't something we can earn on our own. It's a gift given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And the fact that salvation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus, it doesn't point us away from the Bible. No, just the opposite. It points us back to the Bible, to the place where we'll see Jesus more clearly and get to know him more deeply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and what an incredible gift it is. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in it, that you reveal the path to joy in it, that you show us Jesus in it, and that you invite us to true, abundant, lasting, delightful life through your word. Forgive us for the times that we've been lazy or made excuses, and give us a heart that desires to spend time in your word, to know you through it. God, give us Give us diligence this year to read our Bibles faithfully and regularly and to see you in them, to encourage one another in that process. In Jesus' name, amen.